Let me start by saying that I want to encourage you and equip you for whatever you've been called to. Starting or joining a Bible study or reaching out to somebody that maybe you don't have the courage to. According to events or just getting together, I want to encourage you in all those things that Scripture calls you to. To acting like and being the church, being Christ to one another. Or I would simply love just to hear what God is doing in your life. I know that Sandy has some things to share, and I'm really excited to hear um, some of the testimony of what God has been doing in her life. But don't neglect to share those things with one another, because maybe somebody around you is discouraged and hasn't felt as though um, God has been moving in powerful ways in their life. Maybe they can't see it. And so to be able to share those, those ways that God has really been showing you um, how much he loves you and how much he loves them, it will be worth sharing. We have a whole family of God here, and we need to function as a family. We need to have intentional time together outside of our Sunday reunion. I don't know how you feel when you do a family reunion, but I, you know, it's, it's been too long. Like we don't talk to each other. We're finally getting together, and we're trying to cram all this intentional time we needed to have together in a really short amount of time. And that's how I feel Sunday is. Right? It's it's this reunion instead of living life together. So let's continue to move towards towards that. Additionally, I want, to I want to challenge you a little bit. I assume that you found the exercise of listing out your worries and fears last week, which is what we did if you weren't here. We listed out some fears and some worries, and we used that list of, you know, what am I fearful of? What am I worried about? Um, I'm concerned about this for the future. We use that list to identify those ways in which we need to grow in our trust of God. I hope that after, um, after service today, you'll use that fellowship time or when you go home for lunch or uh, meet with some new guests here, whatever it is, uh, that you will use that time to share those same things that you either wrote down on that list or something that you learned from your time in prayer with God this week. Share those things that maybe you realize that you weren't trusting God in. Um, and share those with other people. I think that's going to be a really valuable thing to do. If you're still unsure or you're burdened with worry, I don't want you to give up and to look to something else, but I want you to instead keep your focus on God who cares. And to share those things with one another. How about that? So after service today, share those things you're giving to God. Things you're struggling with. Or ways that even this week, God has taught you about, about trusting Him. It's not, to put you on the it's not to put you on the spot. But it's to call you out for what you need. I know people have to leave immediately after the service, but really take some intentional time to spend time with each other and discuss these, these big things in your life. Let others pray for you and pray for them as well. Okay, that's the, that's the caveat of the intro. We're going back to Genesis 
We're going to try to finish up Genesis, not today, but in the next uh, few months. But we're going to be in Genesis 37, which is, guess what, all about? Anybody idea? All about trusting God. Yes, very good answer. <clears throat> we're finally back on the wagon. We're going to finish Genesis in the next few months. Our story, if you forgot, left off with Jacob and Esau reuniting, followed by their swift separation. Jacob's sons taking revenge on their sister's assaulters with the dirtiest trick in the book. The death of Rachel outside of Bethlehem and Reuben's decision to sleep with his father's concubine. The death of Isaac and Jacob's return to Mamre, which is here at Hebron. There's a slide right here. Hebron, that's the, that's the cave of the patriarchs right there in Hebron. A place that as, we, as you look through Genesis is going to come up over and over and over again. <clears throat> we learn that the book of Genesis is all about the faithfulness of God. And through the whole book of Genesis, him demonstrating his faithfulness and the reasons that we should trust him for the same reasons that those who came before us trusted him. Those in impossible situations, those facing the unknown, those without children for 20 years faithfully praying. So Genesis is all about trusting God. His choosing of Abraham and his family, and how God was consistent in providing for them, protecting them, and redeeming their mistakes for his purpose. And there have been a lot of mistakes so far. God established the identity of his people, because another name for Jacob is... is just the whispers, Israel, yes. Yes, it's Israel. Yes, it's Israel. Yes, good. It's Israel. Say Israel. Thank you. Good job. Yes. <laughs> Which is Israel. Um, through his promises, he has chosen these broken and weak people to be the faithful ones he would love. And through their lineage, bring to earth the promised savior of the world. And God uses this theme throughout the entirety of the Bible, taking these broken and weak people in these impossible situations, and proving himself faithful, proving his glory, proving his power and his sovereignty over those situations. And we're going to see the same thing here in Genesis 37, which is, about, which is the beginning of the story of Joseph. The guy in the saddest situation, completely out of his control. Yeah, we're going to see. The brokenness of his chosen people serves to declare God's glory. And God did pick the most dysfunctional family to show everyone that God has the power to save even them. And Jacob's family really is dysfunctional. Not only did Jacob, not only did Jacob when he went uh, up to Hebron, not to Hebron, Haran, which is in southern Turkey, right? Yes, in southern Turkey, Haran. Um, to find a wife and worked for seven years to get Rachel, but ended up with Leah, right? Yes. And then, and then took Rachel and worked enough, another seven years for her as well. And then after being taken advantage of by the father-in-law, moving back down to the country of his family in the land of Canaan, where Abraham and Isaac and all those guys were, um, now that he's there, 
the consequences of some of those actions and those family dynamics that he made is going to play out now. This is when I kept talking about consequences. Now we're getting to some of that fruition because Jacob and his family love the favorites game. Jacob had a favorite wife. And Jacob now has a favorite son. Jacob's favorite wife dies on the way back down to Canaan. And Jacob's favorite son is now going to be persecuted by the unfavorite sons. By the, by the not the riffraff, but, but by all the ones that didn't come from his chosen and favorite wife. So understand that dynamic a little bit uh, as the understanding of why his brothers don't like him. So Genesis 37 is going to go from from 37 all the way to the end of the book of Genesis is the story of Joseph and his and his family. So Genesis 37, go ahead and turn to your Bible there. Very first book of your Bible. Chapter 37. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, how old was he? 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah. Who are Bilhah and Zilpah? And Zilpah, who are they? They are concubines. Who did they come with? Rachel and Leah, right. They were the handmaidens of Rachel and Leah. They were also some of the wives that were in the whole pregnancy game. When Rachel couldn't conceive children, Leah could conceive children. And when Rachel still couldn't conceive children, she gave her handmaiden to Jacob. And then they had this whole war over who's more superior of a wife for the most children that they could give their husband. So there's that whole dynamic in the whole thing, too. So Joseph was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. He's the snitch. He's the tattletale, right? He's the good old boy. These two women are Jacob's concubines, the servants of Leah and Rachel. They participated in the game of pregnancy, having children for the women they were charged to care for. The family has a few large problems beyond having four wives. They love to play favorites and fight for who's superior, which is definitely going to come and bite them very soon. Verse 3, Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, because he had been born to him in his old age. And he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Have you ever had somebody in your family that you couldn't even say something nice to them? Or maybe it's somebody in your group or group of friends that you've, you've found yourself, you've got to that point, I can't even say something nice to them. It's that person that you and your wife complain about all the time when you go to lay down in bed. Instead of like talking about the great day, you just talk about like, oh, this person. That person. If you're doing that or you're laughing, you're like, oh, that's me. (laughs) Um, By the way, if you're at a family reunion and there's nobody there that's annoying, it's probably you. (laughs) Okay? So just keep that in perspective. 
I had a family reunion this week, so I have a lot of material to draw on. Um, so some of the dynamics that we see in this family, there's a couple other reasons that Joseph loves, or Jacob loves Joseph. Not only is he the son of his chosen and favorite wife, not the wife with weak eyes, um, but he, not, is he, not only is he one of the chosen ones, but he's also, um, well, but he was born to him in his old age. His brothers are jealous of him because who should be the favorite? Who should get the birthright? The oldest, right? The oldest, which is Reuben, right? And what did Reuben recently do? Something naughty, right? He did something he wasn't supposed to. He tried to steal his father's thunder by getting in the marriage bed with, with uh, one of his wives. So Reuben has kind of knocked off his pedestal a little bit. Uh, but still, Joseph is not the oldest son. Okay. He's kind of a baby, right? <clears throat> Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright, while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brother said to him, did you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule? us and they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said right he's the bottom of the totem pole he's the little brother he doesn't get the big share of things he doesn't get to contribute right they're all old and working hard and he's the younger one only 17 he hasn't even proved himself yet in that sense then he had another dream and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream. And this time the sun and the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father, as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Dreams are an interesting topic in all of this. It's not something that we really consider or, or take, uh, take much note of in the Western world when it comes to dreams. And there's a whole, we're, we're going to dive more into this topic later as we go on through Joseph. But one interesting thing I want to point out to you now is the significance that the brothers put on the dream. Notice Joseph never interpreted the dream. He just said, hey, I had this dream. But the dream the brothers and the father interpreted as being against them, as that it was prophetic for them. I just found that kind of interesting. So. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, as you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he has to go run an errand to go out to the field, which is uh, relatively far away. Can you go to the next slide there? Okay, so I'm going to turn off my mic for a second so I don't do this. So this is Nablus, okay? Up here is where we're going to eventually get to. But all the way down here... Um, this is uh, Hebron down here, just west of the Dead Sea, south of south of Jerusalem and Bethlehem. 
And this is, uh, this is along the same path that when Jacob left Haran, which is way up there, and came back down to his, to his family, this is where he ended up. Because Isaac died down here in Hebron, which is the cave of the patriarchs, where he is buried. Okay. So this is where they're hanging out. This is the last recorded place of Jacob and his family. His brothers are taking their flocks all the way up here to Nablus. So it's just a little tiny jaunt, you know what I mean? He's got to go pretty far for that little errand for a six, for a seventeen-year-old. Anyway, <laughs> so he said to him, "Go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks, and bring word back to me." So he sent him off to the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at, arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, what are you looking for? And in my mind, that's kind of funny, right? He was sent for an errand to find his brothers. And now he's at the field or the place that he's supposed to be. And he's just wandering around. And a guy finds him and is like, what are you doing? I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are grazing their flocks? They have moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. Now, there's a really great website, and I want you to write this down. Write this down. If you like Bible history, and you should if you're studying through Genesis or any of this, and you want to be able to put some places to the names and the faces and the history of all of it, it's BibleWalks.com. BibleWalks.com. And it's spelled just exactly like it sounds, all one word. Uh, this is a website that's consistently updated with new pictures and new information um, of archaeological sites all over Israel. So specifically on this one, I don't have permission to show the pictures that they just recently took, but they just went and took uh, drone footage on the 31st of this year, um, being able to get into, this is in Palestine, I believe. Um, they were able to go there under the protection of soldiers and take pictures of the artifacts and some of the temple ruins, not temple ruins, but altar ruins. And it's on what's called a tell, which is these, uh, these ancient mounds where cities are built on top of cities, on top of cities as they, as they crumble over time. Um, that's where this location of this place is at. But BibleWalks.com has, if you're, looking, if you, if you're reading through your Bible and you find a spot of a place or a name or anything like that, look it up on this website and you will see modern pictures of that place, which is pretty sweet. Um, the reason I'm sharing that with you, because it takes a lot of time and effort to sort through all the garbage online, to be able to find a good resource for these places um, that isn't diluted by other things. And also this website does a really good job of taking these biblical names and actually putting those to modern day places and names, because the names have changed over time for the same places. So anyway. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. And I have a, I have a picture of this here. Um, so there's a reason they obviously took their sheep here, yes? It's green in the middle of the desert, exactly. Uh, this right here, you can barely see it, but this is a double, one of those two of those tells, those mounds that are right there. Um, anyway, so um, this is north, this is uh, west of the Sea of Galilee. Okay, so Dothan means a pit or two wells. 
It's at least 93 miles that Joseph walks from where his father sent him all the way up to where he is now. At the la- and that's from the last recorded location of Jacob at Hebron, which is a really long way to run an errand, by the way. Uh, verse 18 says, But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. So they're going to kill him and they're going to dispose of the body in the cistern so that nobody's going to find him. Or will be willing to get him out. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into the cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Which is kind of interesting. You throw somebody into a pit in the wilderness where there's no food or anything. They're probably going to die. But it says, Reuben said this to rescue them, him from them and take him back to his father. This is the same Reuben that slept with his father's wife. So he has some good qualities to him as well here. Verse 23 says, So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, which is quite interesting, so they just they just disposed of their brothers, so and now they're going to sit down and have lunch, which is kind of harsh. They looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, now let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he's our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So let's do something moral and sell our brother into slavery rather than kill him. I mean, if we kill him, we're not going to really gain anything anyway. But we can get some money at least if we sell him off and he will get rid of him. And then we won't be guilty of killing him, right? Hmm. Judah will be talking more about next week in the next chapter. He's not an all-star himself. But it's actually through his line that Christ will come. Interesting. Anyway, so when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. There's some interesting things here. We see camels, another place in Genesis, and we talked about this before, when, you know, modern investigation says that camels weren't domesticated until much later. Um, So that's an interesting thing that I would encourage you to, to, uh, to research yourself. But one thing I will add is that the Ishmaelites and the Midianites, in verse 25, it says Ishmaelites. In 28, it says Midianites. How can that be? How Are they two different people groups? According to Judges 8, at the end of Gideon's story, Midianites are Ishmaelites. There we go. There's the answer. 
29, when Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, the boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? His rescue plan had obviously failed. Verse 31, then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornate robe back to their father and said, we found this. Examine it to see whether it's your son's robe. Which is a really interesting way to phrase it, right? This lie that they've crafted, crafted. They're not saying, hey, look, this is Joseph's robe. They're saying, hey, we found this robe and we couldn't find our brother. Here, check out this robe and see if it's his. They're being pretty shady. He recognized it and said, it is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. It's interesting, a couple notes that you can add on this situation. Is it recorded yet that Joseph cries out to God or prays to God at all? What is the apparent relationship of Israel or Jacob's family with God? Are they are they really trying to do what's moral or are they corrupted themselves? <laughs> I think it's interesting that the circumstances here are just really terrible for Joseph. But still God has a plan and all these terrible things are going to serve God's plan to redeem not only that family, but through them, the people of the world through the blood of Christ. We can see, because we know the Bible, that good is going to come out of this situation. But imagine how Joseph felt. And for that matter, how Reuben felt, having to save, if, after failing to save his brother from his own brothers. Family stretches us in some very challenging ways. But I would say that family is kind of like the test bed that God gives us. We only have so much emotional energy, so much that we can invest into people and our lives and connections into people. Our family is those people that God has put in our lives to be around all the time. And so when we are unable to reconcile or to get along with, our, with even our own family, even as personally as we know them, and how much we know they're not worthy of forgiveness because of what we know of them. Our family is a really great place for us to challenge our understanding of forgiveness, to challenge our understanding of grace, and to challenge what we think love is, to instead turn to God's grace and his forgiveness and his love to replace those things that we think we're doing in the selfish ways that we are being. Like I said, I hosted a family reunion this week at my house. And I'm sure you know how it feels when they all leave. And now crazy has been like turned down a few notches. I would challenge that my family reunion was worse than yours. 
You can talk to me about it later. <laughs> but even still, um, there was a lot of blessing that came out of it. And there was opportunity to show love to people, people in my family, people outside of my family, um, that I really didn't want to. And that was something that God had just dropped on me. Completely out of, out of nowhere, completely out of the blue. Um, and I had to step back and to really check myself. And think and say, you know, how does God want me to love these people? And if I can't even love my own family, how can I love others. It's often that we think we know. It's often that we think that we are loving everyone. But in reality, there's some love that we reserve from people. There's just those. I love everybody. And you don't use the word accept, but there is an accept. And so I do want you to challenge, I do want you to challenge yourself in that. Challenge that accept for those people that you've disregarded, for those people that annoy you, for those people that disappoint you, for those people that fail you. And then additionally, do it in trusting God. I mean, we see these dynamics of, we see these dynamics of Joseph's family and the one to be dis discarded, the one to be hated, is the one that God's going to use to redeem the family. We keep building this, this whole thing around trust. Well, Scripture keeps building it around trust. And so we really need to bring it back to that. Do we trust God that he loves us? And if we trust God that he loves us, then we need to trust him to give us love for the people that he's put in our lives. One of these people this week, we were talking and they said, I really don't know what the purpose is for my life. I'm still trying to figure that all out. What is the purpose of, of you know, I go to church and I, and I try to be a good person. I do things and... But what is the purpose of my life? I'm trying to search for it. And it, in what we've learned so far in Genesis, and what I've gathered from Scripture, really the first thing that popped into my mind when that was said is that loving is our greatest purpose. Loving is our greatest command. When... They asked Jesus, what's the greatest command in an effort to, to test him on his knowledge of God's word, which he is God. So it's kind of ironic. He said, love the Lord. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Love is our greatest command. 
If we can't love our enemy or our family, it means we still have not understood the depth of the love of Christ. And the love that we have been created to demonstrate, that is our purpose, to love God and to love the people he's created. At the basic foundation, everything else we have freedom in, in pursuit of what he's called us to. Freedom to make mistakes. Freedom to pursue the passions he's put in our heart. Freedom to take care of the family that he's given us and the responsibilities that he's given us. But under all of that is this command to love him and to love others. This family we're reading about failed to do that. Obviously. I mean, I don't know how many in here have conspired. Maybe you've said you wanted to kill somebody before. But actually conspiring to do it is a whole other process. And then actually doing it is a, is a step further. But they actually did those things. So it's discouraging when you look at that failure and go, man, this is what they were supposed to do, but they did the opposite. But what's encouraging is that even those terrible people and the things that they did, God redeemed them. Through their mistakes, God used what they intended for bad and created something good out of it. And not just something good, but saved all of them through it. So when we see that family failing, we need to know that God is going to redeem that situation and turn it, turn it on its head to save his people, something that only he could do. This is why we need to trust God, because he can fix what is broken. He can provide when there is nothing. He can place the discarded son in the seat of power in the place in the literal land of milk and honey when a famine strikes the land. In an effort down the road, years in advance, to save that very family that discarded him. All of this speaks to God's faithfulness, his control and his power. Joseph can't see what God is doing. And it's often that we can't see it either. So it's a matter of trusting God, loving God, and loving people. God changed everything in his life to prepare him for the purpose that he was created for. To love God and to love people. Joseph's circumstances really couldn't have gotten any worse, could they have? But the recounting of the terrible things that happened to him serve and prove how good and how great God is. So I do want you to make again, or to review that list that you wrote last week. Hopefully you didn't forget about it. And if you're new, um, if you're new, I do want you to write down, you know, what am I fearful of? Um, what are my worries? Write those things out. And then in prayer, take those things to God and trust him for those things. 
and challenge yourself and challenge each other in those ways. So look at the prayers you wrote, the worry still weighing on you, and the sin that you give yourself to. And ask again, God, can I trust you? Compare yourself to the recounting of Joseph and the situations that he was in. Could Joseph trust God? Yes, he could. He grew to trust God, yes? If God can save Joseph and his brothers, he can surely save you. Let's pray. Father, we just want you to to lead us to trust you in all areas, in all aspects of our life, Lord. We thank you for recording the history of your people. Because as your people today, Lord, we have this benefit of looking back on what you have done and understanding who you are and what your priorities are and how valuable we are to you. Lord, transfer that value to our hearts, not only so that we understand how valuable we are, but that we understand how valuable the rest of us are as we look at our family, as we look at our friends, as we look at the people of this world, how valuable all of those souls are to you. Lord, change our hearts, change our perspective, give us compassion and give us love, Lord. Father, we pray that you would uh, prepare us as we finish through studying through Genesis and that you would reveal uh, things to us that we hadn't learned before and that you would emphasize in your word the message that we need to hear. Lord, be with us this week and guide and guard our hearts and lead us to be the people that you want us to be. Give us the trust in you that you desire and give us the love for you that you desire, Lord. And these things we pray. Amen.